being Palestinian, you lose an elder, you're in exile, you're separated from them, you've been separated from them for your whole life. Now they're gone forever. Pressure to grieve in the perfect way, make sure that you put as much of their life down in the public record for everyone to know and see because we are constantly being told that we don't exist. Being gaslit and then how that impacts how we grieve. He died stateless. He died without a passport. What about the millions of people who don't have citizenship anywhere because Israel is denying them the right to go live where they were born? He expressed to me this was not a path that we chose for ourselves. We didn't want to be separated from our land. We didn't want to be outside of Palestine. Even though he's so far from it, it's still so close in his heart. I remember telling him I care so much and I wanted him to know that I care about being Palestinian, about our story, our culture. And if you don't care, it doesn't matter where you are. If you do care, then you will fight like hell no matter where you are. Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gossam Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram. And you can call me Mikey Intifada if you've been leaving negative reviews because your narrative is so fragile, it can be disproved with a single movie. Before we get into today's episode, like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. And if you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the palestinepod. Find us also on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes, an additional one to two podcasts per week, including our latest podcast, The Patreon Pod. It's a little more laid back. We talk politics, Palestine, pop culture, and get a little more personal. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash palestinepod. Today, I want to take some time to talk about my Sido, who's passed away. Uh, my Sido Nader passed away at the age of 89 years old last week on November 24th, 2022. And I just want to take some time to reflect on his passing and, and what it means to me and what it means to me as a Palestinian still in this struggle for, for our freedom. I was really nervous about recording and I was kind of like, I'll do it tomorrow. No, I'm not ready. I don't want to do it because I, I felt this pressure to have something so perfect prepared to honor my grandfather, my Sido Nader, who passed away on November 24th, so last week in Kuwait. And I don't think I'll ever really be ready and I need to just do it. So <laughs> I think there's definitely a lot of pressure because when you being Palestinian, you lose an elder, you're in exile, you're separated from them, you've been separated from them for your whole life. And now they're gone forever. There's this pressure to grieve in the perfect way and to, to remember them in the perfect way and to make sure that you put as much of their life down in the public record for everyone to know and see because we are constantly being told that we don't exist, that our history isn't real that, you know, Palestine was empty, that, uh, oh, the Zionists didn't kill anyone in the Nakba. That's the latest thing, right? You know, with the whole Farha movie is is uh, Israel's officials freaking out about the lies that are being told in this movie, which, which retells the story of the Nakba from the perspective of this young girl. And the entire premise of the movie is that she witnesses a Palestinian family be killed by Zionists and now Israel's saying that, oh, it's the movie's filled with lies. So what, what's your position exactly, that you didn't kill any Palestinians during the Nakba? You killed 15,000 of us. So now it's lies that one Palestinian family was murdered by Zionist gangs? Is that, I mean, what what is this alternate reality that they live in and that they're constantly imposing on us? And that creates a particular psychological space for us to exist in where we're constantly being gaslit about our own existence and then how that impacts how we grieve and how we deal with the actual loss of our elders is something that I've just been struggling with a lot this last week. So all that to say that I, I didn't know if I was ready and you know I've tried to put some 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 things down so that I don't 
don't forget or do my best to to try to make him proud with what I with what I say about him. Okay, a few things. First off, ala yeramo. Thank you. Anything that you do will make them proud for sure because you are a living representation of what they wanted from the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. Um for sure my you know, one of the things that happened after I found out that my Sido passed away was that I started looking in my phone for some videos of the last time I was in Kuwait, which was in 2019, and the last time that I saw him. I found a video of him driving me to the gym. I turned the camera on while we were in the car, and we were t- we had a conversation that was really, really, really intense actually for for where we were going and what I was doing and he started to tell me that the Palestinians who ended up in the west ultimately are 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 going to lose in the sense that that with the passing of a few generations eventually the language will be lost the culture will be lost the religion will inevitably be lost and even if I'm able to maintain what I am then it's just a matter of time before we we melt into our surroundings and our history is lost. And he expressed to me what a tragedy that would be because this was not a path that we chose for ourselves. We didn't want to be separated from our land. We didn't want to be outside of Palestine. And I remember telling him that at the end of the day, it's going to come down to the individual person and all the efforts that we make to keep a connection with Palestine and that I care so much. And I wanted him to know that I cared so much about being Palestinian, about our story, about our lineage, about our culture and our tradition and our religion, that I wasn't going to go down without a fight and that I was going to do everything that I could to make sure that I transmitted that to my child. And I insisted to him and I promised him, I said, Sido, I said, look, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't care about this stuff, it doesn't matter where you are. If you're in Palestine and you don't care, it doesn't matter. If you don't care, you're not going to do this work to 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 educate the next generation and to make sure that the next generation knows the importance of identity. If you do care, then you will fight like hell, no matter where you are, to ensure that these values, this language, this culture, this religion is transmitted. And I said, I want you to know that I care and I'm going to do everything I can to learn what I don't know, transmit what I do know, and it's going to be a lifelong fight for me. And then he dropped me off at the gym. <laughs> and then and then he picked me back up a couple of hours later. He said the heavy lifting's already done. My Sido was a very gentle person. He he was very committed to his family. He was a family man, married, had four children. The oldest was my mother. I've talked about it before on the pod, but he was an educator. He came to Kuwait and essentially built the education system with a handful of other Palestinians who were selected for this task in the 1950s. He was never allowed to go back to Palestine to live. And so he spent the rest of his days in Kuwait. And he passed away at the age of 89, just a month shy of his 90th birthday. And he died stateless. He died without a passport. His whole life, he thought maybe um, eventually, you know, there'll be a way to get citizenship in Kuwait. It never happened. There was no other path for him to citizenship elsewhere because he didn't live anywhere else. And the one country which he actually owes his origins to, where he was born, where his parents were born, he couldn't have citizenship there because he was never allowed to go back to Palestine to live. And I think about what it means for my grandfather to die at the age of 89 without a passport, without a state. And I think of the ongoing injustice of Israel's continued violation of our right to return. And I think of how my grandfather is just one among millions of Palestinians for whom this is a reality. I don't even talk about the right to return anymore. The mainstream conversations are about uh, settlements and, you know, two states. And what about the millions of people who don't have citizenship anywhere because Israel is denying them the right to go live where they were born and live where their parents were born? And 
for whom every single day is just another act of injustice. You know, it's devastating to me that that his life ended in that way. It's devastating to me that right now my grandmother, who is 80 years old, is not sure if she's going to be able to stay in Kuwait because her residency was attached to my grandfather's. And now that my grandfather has passed, she's also stateless and without proper residency. So either she she's going to be allowed to stay in Kuwait because of some exception, or she's going to have to find somewhere else to go. But again, she can't go back to Palestine because we've been cut off from our homeland. There's a lot of emotions like about that also, about how death in this context brings up questions of injustice. And it's not, you know, it's not just, a, it's not a peaceful death. He didn't die in Palestine. He didn't die where he, where he, where he wanted to, to pass away. He was, he was prevented from going back to his homeland. And now there's this additional layer of injustice about what's going to happen to my grandmother. So much, so many things. It like, it, 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 it brings up so many emotions. And, and honestly, so many of them have nothing to do with the fact that he's actually passed. Because for Muslims, you know, for humans, death is a reality. We will all go through it. That one comedian say it's a great equalizer, right? Death and taxes. Everybody's got to die. Everyone's got to pay taxes. Unless you're Wesley Snipes and you don't pay taxes. We all go through death. It's not, it's not even about the fact that he has passed. It's about the fact that the fact that he has passed means indefinitely that there is not going to have been a resolution to the injustices that he faced in his life at the hands of the Zionist project. That is the, the real source of pain. Because for so long as he was alive, there was always the, well, my grandparents are still alive, so the connection is still there, Palestine is still there, you know, maybe things will change. There was always that hope that the injustice could be undone in his lifetime. Now, for sure, the injustice will not have been undone in his lifetime. Feels like an episode where I I'm not going to say much. No, you have to. I mean, I don't know. I'm just talking <laughs> at you, but I'm like, I don't know what to That's say. fine. You're honestly giving a fantastic speech, but just do less with your hands. You're being very Italian. Okay. <laughs> it's like you're possessed by Vin Arfuso right now. <laughs> all, I, all I need is a casual cigarette. <laughs> Ben is literally the last person I know that still smokes cigarettes. Like, what is, you know what I mean? It's a very Jersey thing. Is it? Okay. Yeah, like New York, New Jersey, they all stand outside and smoke cigarettes together. Yeah. Like, in yeah. 2022? Like, I, like, not 2006? Like, I don't know. Well, the thing about addictive habits is... <laughs> I told you that one of the reasons I wanted to start Palestine Pod was for my season. Yeah. Uh, I told you that it was something that I settled on after I initially had considered doing a project centered around going back into the the archives of my family's you know photo books and 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 newspaper clippings and things that we've kept over the years and compiling all of that and putting that into the public domain. And part of the reason why I didn't opt for this first project was because of the difficulty in accessing these documents. I managed to get some things, but it was so difficult to get things. And it was so difficult specifically to get information, even from my grandfather. I tried to sit down and interview him and it was really tough and it didn't go very well. But strangely, and this is where, you know, the old adage that you know god works in mysterious ways proves itself to be true after he passed i had extended family members contacting my mother who were now flooding her with old photos and articles and documents that i was looking for for years and I didn't even have to ask for them. The people were just reaching out to my mother and saying, "We heard about your father's passing. We we have we have these photos. We wanted you to have them of the family." And I got a hold of some insane photos, photos of my great aunt Bahadur Suwan in Gaza with Yasser Arafat. Photos of my great grandmother, my Sido's mother in Gaza. 
photos of my great-grandfather, my Sidu's father, in Gaza. Photos of my great-grandfather's identity card, his passport from 1947, my great-grandfather's passport from 1947, which says on it, British passport, Palestine, a year before the Nakba, and shows that he's from Gaza, born in Gaza, lives in Gaza. Identity documents that say that my great-grandparents are, quote, Palestinian citizens. I was just floored. I'm like, this needs to be in a museum. But then I thought, why does this need to be in a museum? Like, what people's ID cards need to be in a museum? Like, wouldn't it be weird if your California, you know, driver's license was in a museum? And then I realized it has to be in a museum because we're constantly being told that we don't exist. Yeah. If somebody was like, California never happened, I'd be like, well, maybe put up my ID. I don't know. <laughs> right. But then, it, but like this whole process of, of realizing how essential and important these documents are to the Palestinian story, but then realizing also that these documents are so basic and, and mundane in the context of so many other people's stories. And then just realizing how that only goes to reinforce the levels of gaslighting that we deal with on a daily basis. Pictures of of huge family gatherings in Gaza. Here's the photo of my Sido's sister, Bahadur Suwan, who was a principal in Gaza with Yasser Arafat. Yes, I see that. Good. Nice. (laughs) That's fire. That's fire, right? Here is my great uncle on the right with Yasser Arafat. That's my Sido's brother on the right with Yasser Arafat in Gaza. Yasser looks young there. Yeah. And he's always, he always has a goofy smile on. He's so happy to be everywhere. Here. It's an amazing photo of my great-grandfather. My great-grandfather, who, whose name is Jaban Hassan Suwan. An amazing photo of him. Another amazing photo of my great-grandfather. And that's the guy who used to take the train into Syria, yeah? Yeah, this is the guy who would go from Syria to Gaza on a like just to work. He would go to Damascus for work. He'd come back like in the afternoon. It was like no big deal. Yeah. That's this guy. He had a neighbor who was Jewish and a yeah. neighbor who was Christian and everybody yep. got along before Zionism. That's exactly. what I remember from you talking about him. Yes, you remember yeah, that's exactly it. Here is the cover of my great-grandfather's ID card, and it says, ID card, Government of Palestine. Yeah. That is the inside of my great-grandfather's ID card from Palestine. And I'll, Perfect. And it basically says, race, Arab, height, 5'6". He was a short guy. Which is we so love funny. a short king. <laughs> yeah. It also says, color of hair mixed, build medium color of eyes brown. Now this is the creme de la creme. This is my great-grandfather's passport. Okay. Passport number 253971. So if Zionists are watching this, they can add this to their records. They're like, we already had it. (laughs) (laughs) It took you years to find it. You could have asked us, honestly. (laughs) We just sent you an email. Uh, We've got your email. (laughs) When I send you the picture, you'll be able to see it. It says British passport. And then there's like an emblem of like the fucking a lion or something. Or something. Yes. Like is that a, a lion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like an emblem. They got they got no lions in London. It's an emblem of like the the kingdom or whatever. It says my grandfather's name and then it says the passport number and then it says Palestine. So it says British passport Palestine. So the inside is very interesting. It says this passport contains 32 pages. It's written in English, in French, in Arabic. And there's even some Hebrew in it. It says national status, Palestinian citizen under Article 1 of the Palestinian Citizenship Order of 1925. This passport is dated the 8th of October, 1947, a year before the Nakba. 
I even have my great-grandfather's birth certificate. He was born in the late 1800s in, in Gaza. Nice. And then I have some photos of a child's birthday party, people enjoying being with family, all of our family's house in Gaza. These photos are probably from the 50s because it shows my great-grandmother being quite elderly. She's the one in the middle right there. Yeah. Adorable. Yeah. I'll show you another picture of her. There she is. That's in her house in Gaza, probably in the 50s as well. Mm Mm-hmm. She looks so cozy. <laughs> out of out of all the documents that I got access to, the ones that show life before the Nekba are the ones that pull at my heartstrings the most, the ones that make me most emotional because it speaks to this alternate reality which we could have lived had it not been for the establishment of Israel on Palestine. And it speaks even to the fact that our not only were our families there, but they were engaged in the mundane realities of life, going to the government office to get your passport, you know, photo taken and your passport issued. And uh, there's references to my great grandfather's occupation and my great grandmother's name and number of children. They were families, homemakers. There were photos of birthday parties and all sorts of evidence confirming our deep connection to an existence on this land. And all of that was taken and and interrupted in 1948. Back then, occupation was how you made money. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Not um, how money is taken from you and everything else. And all the other stuff. What did he do for work? Uh, well, my great grandfather, yeah, businessman. That's what it says. It just says businessman. <laughs> it's like <Sick>. generic. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. Uh, to these days, when you say I'm a businessman, it's like okay, you're definitely in the mafia or selling drugs or something. You know what I mean? Nobody's just yeah. a generic businessman. Well, you are if you don't want to talk about it. <laughs> sure, but look, I will say something that came out of this that really touched me was that there were visitations from my grandfather. In Gaza, in Kuwait, and in Chicago. He was remembered by Palestinians all over the world because he lived until he was almost 90 years old. He knew many generations of Palestinians all over the world. And his family were everywhere from Sweden to the U.S. to Kuwait to Gaza still and and, and other places. And it really touched me to see how everybody was writing about him on online and made time to remember him so that was really special one of one of the interesting things that came out of our search for videos of my grandfather after he passed was my sister came across a video that my mom had recorded when my sister was getting married because my sister married a palestinian guy whose family is still in gaza and we've talked about my brother-in-law and and how his family's apartment building was attacked in the 2021 assaults on Gaza before on on the show. And the video that we found of my my Sido speaking to my brother-in-law's father on the phone, we recorded it because it was the conversation whereby my brother-in-law's father is asking my Sido for my sister's hand in marriage. So we recorded it. And it's a very funny conversation because my brother-in-law's father is talking about how, you know, we just want to see if it's possible that there's any destiny between them, if it's mektub for them to be together. And, you know, we're simple people. We're just here trying to do our best on this earth. And then, you know, death is going to happen to everybody. And we're just hoping that in the time that we're here, we can do good things. And, you know, speaking in like those typical Palestinian cliches about life and death and 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 love and family and all this stuff. My grandfather listened to all of this 
And his response to my brother-in-law's father was, Shab al-Falastini mazloom. Mazloom. That means that the Palestinian people are oppressed. And I'm like, man, this conversation is so depressing. They are supposed to be talking about you guys getting married. And all they're doing is talking about our oppressive daily realities. But at the end of it, it turns out to be a great conversation because my grandfather agrees. And he says, just make sure that your son knows that my granddaughter is a, is a jewel and is a treasure and should be taken care of as such. And that she is a trust from God and that he, he should take care of her as such. And I'm sitting here just analyzing this with, with my sister. And I'm like, we are so different. You know, we like, we are talking about you guys getting married. We're talking about, do you agree that, you know, our family is joined together and it's two elderly Palestinian men commiserating about how our people are so oppressed and yet it's still a good conversation and it's still a conversation about love and life and happiness because it's their outlet for them to express the injustice that they suffered and that they feel and that they continue to live in. It's, it's a sort of therapy for them and, and it allows them to continue to, to, to live honestly. And, and I said, wow, you know, when I, when I watched that, I was like, it's so Palestinian. It's so Palestinian. You know, we're sitting here talking about marriage and my grandfather's just like Palestinians. We are so oppressed. And at the very end of it, they started chatting about where our families were from in Gaza, which is actually interesting because you think that that would have happened at the beginning of the call, but it actually happened at the end. And my Sido said, yeah, we're, well, we're from Ramal. We're from the Ramal district of Gaza. And my brother-in-law's father said, oh, Ramal? Oh, where where exactly? He goes, do you see that tower at the end of the, you know, at the right by the mosque at the end of the street that's perpendicular to this other street? And my brother-in-law's father said, yeah, of course, the tower. Everybody knows the tower. And he said, yeah, so just, you know, go past the tower, take a left, and then take a right when you go. And, and he's describing in perfect detail how to get to his childhood home. As if he had just been there yesterday, but of course he hadn't been there in over 60 years. And that, of course, that also was very, very, very touching for me to see because even though he's so far from it, it's still so close in his heart. And he can still describe with, you know, perfect detail all of the surroundings of his old neighborhood. That was beautiful. Thanks. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, I'm sure I'll have much more to say about him in, in future episodes. There's I, there's so much I, I want to write down. And and uh, and again, it's all about just trying to preserve our history in, in the face of an incessant and endless campaign designed to deny our very existence. So this episode is going to be one of mourning because... The People's Bubby recently passed. Uh, there was a GoFundMe campaign that was generated by JVP. Sarah Koshar was the organizer. She put an update on the GoFundMe, which raised forty-five, nearly 46000 for Shotzi's end-of-life care. With full and heavy hearts, we want to share with you all that Shotzi Weisberger, the People's Bubby, 92-year-old anti-Zionist Jew, lesbian, abolitionist, nurse, and lifelong organizer died recently. She said over and over that she felt utterly surrounded in love. In her own words this past week, she said, I am dying and yet this is the best time of my life. A core wish of Shotzi's was a joyous online memorial, a celebration of her life. The streets of New York will not be the same without Shotzi, and yet, what a legacy she offers us. Shotzi's obituary was written at her request by her friend, Jay Saper. Shotzi Weisberger, the People's Booby. Shotzi Weisberger, 92, faced her death as she lived her life with an open heart and compassionate soul, ever unafraid to embrace the unpopular. The lifelong nurse and activist became a death educator in her later years, hosting workshops on the art of dying, challenging death-phobic 
culture and promoting honest conversations about the uncomfortable moment that we all must meet one day. Shotzi planned her own fun Earl in 2018, which was reported on by the New York Times. At what she considered her death party, friends decorated a biodegradable coffin while they were serenaded by socially relevant songs sung by the Brooklyn Women's Chorus, where she sang. In addition to organizing the celebration, Shotzi meticulously planned for the care she would receive in her final moments. Shotzi's loved ones ensured her final wishes would be honored. As unconventional as she was in death, Shotzi was also a trailblazer in life. She attributed her rebel spirit to being the great-granddaughter of Samuel Gompers, the founder of the American Federation of Labor. Born Joyce Schatzberg on June 17, 1930, Shotzi grew up in a Jewish household with a lesbian mother. From a young age, she began organizing against racist redlining practices on Long Island. After reading Betty Friedman's The Feminine Mystique, Shotzi ended an unhappy marriage. She gravitated towards lesbian political and social community. In the 1970s, she became involved with groups such as radical Jewish lesbian organizing and dykes opposed to nuclear technology and faced arrest for her organizing efforts, which preceded the nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island. We all lay on the ground as if there had been a nuclear attack, Shotzi recalled, of a particular action. And I remember crying because I felt like I was in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing with the right people. During the 1980s, Weisberger joined the AIDS Coalition to unleash power known as ACT UP. A lifelong nurse, she made home visits to care for people with AIDS. Fed up with conventional political parties that seemed to neglect the communities closest to her heart, Weisberger tirelessly trotted a clipboard to community colleges throughout New York State, encouraging students to become independents. As the prison population ballooned, giving rise to mass incarceration, Shotzi elevated the voices of people behind bars who criticized the racist policies, tearing loved ones away from their communities. From the sidewalks of New York City, she distributed No More Cages, one of the first publications of what became known as the prison abolitionist movement. Shotzi was a proud Jewish lesbian who fiercely advocated for Palestinian human rights. She held workshops on Palestine solidarity at the Michigan Women's Music Festival and worked with Rabab Abdelhadi as part of the Palestinian Defense Committee. For the latter part of her life, Shotzi delighted in the company of her beloved cat Rosa. Jewish Voice for Peace became Shotzi's political home. She was a key member of the organization's Bubby Brigade, a political street theater group of elderly Jewish women. At one demonstration, she handed out challah while holding a sign reading Jewish Dyke Standing with Palestinian Queers. Isolated, that clip could get me canceled. When uprisings against police violence blossomed in the wake of the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd in 2020, Weisberger affixed her Black Lives Matter sign to her walker and wheeled out into the streets to join protests. As Shotzi continued to show up at demonstrations day after day fighting for justice, she became known as the People's Bubby, a nod to the affectionate Yiddish term for grandmother, which would soon become her Twitter handle. Weisberger was eager to leverage the attention she received to support the movement, writing for the Huffington Post, All I want for my 90th birthday is to abolish the police and build our dream world. Shotzi was married for 18 years to Gene Weisberger. They adopted two children, Jack at five years old from Greece and a year later, Sabina, a newborn from California. Shotzi is survived by grandchildren, Dave, Melissa, and Amanda Hamilton, and Jennifer, Devin, and Jake Weisberger, as well as great-grandchildren Slater and Indy Hamilton. The streets of New York will never be the same without her. However, those who dream of building a better world will forever carry the treasure of knowing Shotzi Weisberger in our hearts. 
And uh, I want to thank the folks at JVP for uh, organizing that for her. Yeah, just another example of a fierce anti-Zionist Jewish elder. Two remnants of what could have happened. Definitely. And then- yeah, I saw a comment um, maybe on one of, on your Instagram post that said, the key is yours now. Yeah, I, 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 I pinned that comment because it was so emotional. I, I read that and I was like, wow. Yes, it is. And that's and that's why I feel all this pressure. That's why I feel like I need to do everything I can to keep the struggle alive and to keep to keep our story alive. It was a cousin of mine that left that uh comment, one of my extended cousins, who by the way I've never met because we're not in Palestine and we're all separated, but we've connected just through social media. That's why they're like, we got to cut, we got to shut down social media. <laughs> Right, too many Palestinians. We gotta. We uh, we're gonna have Elon buy Twitter. Fuck that up. Everybody's gonna get off. Too many Palestinians getting to know their families, who we've separated them from, and uh, that can't be good for our narrative. So they gotta go. Yeah, everybody, shut down social media and then leave negative reviews. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that. So. This this negative reviews controversy refers to the latest in Zionist fragility is <laughs> yeah the latest in Zionist Fidel tears is about the release of this new Jordanian film called Farha that is set in 1948 and tells the story of a young 14 year old Palestinian girl who petitions her father, the leader of their village, to allow her to get go to school in the city with her best friend. And although her father eventually concedes, her plans to get educated are abruptly cut short by the events of the Nakba, which take place in 1948. And this girl... Throughout the course of the film, witnesses the killing of a Palestinian family by Zionist soldiers. Now, I have to say I haven't seen the film yet. Part of me was sitting with my hand on the remote about to press play yesterday, and I just wasn't ready to watch it. So I'm going to take some time this weekend to do that when I can properly decompress and and take time to process it because it's really intense to watch a movie about a trauma that your family has lived and continues to live. This is not fiction for us. This is literally the lives of millions of Palestinians. This is our story as a people. And we're very much watching something that we have experienced ourselves our families have experienced them themselves and so it hits very close to home definitely going to be an exercise in reliving trauma and and having to process process it in a in a healthy way you watch the movie no not yet the new york times actually did quite a nice review for the film they have no wonder the zionists are in a tizzy <laughs> yeah they've titled the review Farha, a most brutal coming-of-age story. Set in the early days of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, this drama depicts the upheaval of Palestinian society from a 14-year-old girl's perspective. That's what the New York Times wrote. I mean, already this is bad news for the Zionists because they've, they've acknowledged that there was an entire Palestinian society. I mean, that doesn't work for Zionists who tell you that nobody was there and the land was empty and it was just tumbleweed. It's very interesting that they are like in the early days of a conflict, an entire society was upheaved. In their own sentence, they contradict themselves. Yeah. And wouldn't you think that that would be the origin? Wouldn't that be a good reason to be upset? But it's, I mean, but even still, they're framing it from a Zionist perspective where it's like, it's a conflict. Sure. 
Sure. That's fine. I don't care. Honestly, I don't even care about that because the way that what they are describing has happened is in and of itself an admission of the reality of the brutality and, and the extent to which Palestinian society was destroyed, demolished, disconnected, removed, deleted, all the words that you want by the implementation of the Zionist project. They say very clearly, this drama depicts the upheaval of Palestinian society. Okay, so that's kind of a good reason to be upset, right? Your whole society is upheaved. Upheaval is such a nice word for brutally, forcibly displaced genocide. You know what I mean? Upheaval sounds like... No, I mean, look, upheaval, upheaval is not a good thing, Michael. Upheaval. No, I understand, but it's upheaval. still... A- Definition, a violent or sudden change or disruption to something. Okay. It's a little, you're right. It, it's a little tamer than murder. Genocide. You know, and ethnic cleansing. But it still depicts that something took place that it, destroyed it, Palestinian yeah. society. And if that were you, wouldn't that be a good reason to be upset? So I think I think it's more good than bad. But let's keep going. They say... Set in the year 1948, the year that Israel declared independence, spurring a war that would result in the upheaval of Palestinian society, Farha depicts a relatively small-scale tragedy considering the scope of the violence. Yet the drama, which primarily unfolds in a tiny storage room, speaks volumes. The film by the Jordanian writer-director Darin Salam is a brutal kind of -of coming-of-age story. It follows Farha, a plucky 14-year-old who chafes against gendered traditions. She petitions her father, the leader of their village, to let her go to school in the city with her best friend, Farida. Her dad eventually concedes, but Farha's time on cloud nine is abruptly cut short. Salam doesn't go out of her way to detail the politics fueling the moment. Basic knowledge of what Palestinians refer to as the Nekba, Arabic for catastrophe, that impacted the region at the time, should make it clear that the newly arrived soldiers are from the Israel Defense Forces. From Farha's teen girl perspective, life is scowling at boys and daydreaming about urban adventures. So when the gunfire starts and the village descends into chaos, it's all a blur. Farha impulsively jumps out of the family getaway vehicle, refusing to leave her father behind. Almost immediately, her father throws her into a storage cellar and locks her in for her safety. She remains there for an indefinite amount of time, rummaging through the preserves, catching rainwater, peering out of a peephole. One day, a scene of great barbarity plays out before her tiny window, with the camera approximating her obstructed point of view. Most of the rest of the time, however, Salam keeps the camera fixed on Farha's face. Farha doesn't do much besides wait. Yet by simply looking at this young girl, we witness a devastating transformation. That's the New York Times review. And I would say, I have two things to say about this review. I think it's pretty good, right? In terms of representing. It definitely presented a Zionist perspective of what happened in 1948, where they're like, they declared independence as opposed to, and then also they referred to the people from 1948 as IDF soldiers, which didn't exist, right? So it's not great from my personal opinion, but, uh, you know, I understand where it's like, there were some positive aspects of it. What I would say is like, they were Zionist gangs. They were often like militias. They were maybe referred to as the Haganah, if you want to, you know, get specific or air gun. Weren't known as IDF soldiers. So you're sure. anachronistic by using that language. And you further cement like a whitewashing of, you know, or like a, a legitimizing of this violence, which was abrupt and uh, brutal. Yeah, so you're look, you're absolutely right. It's factually inaccurate to paint the perpetrators of the Nakba as the army of the state of Israel, which had not yet been established. Yeah, and then it's like they they declared independence from what? You know what I mean? Like who what did they declare because it's like it was British, as you mentioned with your grandfather's passport, British who were occupying the British occupation of Palestine. Palestine. 
after World War One, right after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. And then when they say they declared independence, what they mean is they blew up enough British soldiers where the British were like, I think we're good here, actually. We'll leave them to fight it out. So it's like, in addition to murdering British people, and then like they engaged in a, you know, massive campaign of genocide, ethnic cleansing, murder, rapes against the Palestinian people. And so to to call that a declaration of independence is, again, further cementing, legitimizing, you know, what would become state violence, but was not state violence at the time. It was just a bunch of fucking thugs. Right. I, I definitely agree with that. I think that there are some aspects of the article which are a surprise to me as a Palestinian because I don't expect the New York Times to talk about the Nakba at all because the standard is so low. I know that the Nakba happened. We all know that the Nakba happened because we lived the Nakba. Our, our families lived the Nakba. And the, 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 the extent to which it has been documented by oral tradition of Palestinians who were alive at the time, whose lives were uprooted at the time. It, it, we don't have to even go there. For me, seeing that in the New York Times, talking about the Nakba, talking about it as a catastrophe, talking about the fact that our society experienced an upheaval, the author describes a scene of great barbarity when she's speaking about the murder of the Palestinian family at the hands of what she misquotes as the IDF, right? We, which we know are the the, the, the pre-Israel army forces that carried out the Nakba. So I think there are some aspects of it which are helpful, but as you said, there's also other aspects of it which definitely reinforce misinformation surrounding the theft of Palestine and the erasure of Palestine. So Ahmed al-Din posted a video describing what has transpired since the film was posted on Netflix on December 1st. Since the moment that it was posted, it began to garner dozens and dozens of one-star reviews seemingly by bots that were sent by Zionists to pollute the IMDb page for the movie. And turns out they're actually real people. They just have the personality of bots. So as of right now, the movie has 12,000 reviews on imdb and and that's an organic number and the and the very no but actually it's interesting because the very silly campaign to flood this page with one star reviews has totally failed they have only succeeded in in voting around 1500 times with one star reviews and there's over 10,000 10-star reviews. So the, the movie now has an average rating of 8.3. Their campaign to prevent Netflix. It, it, the, the campaign goes beyond just flooding the page with one-star reviews. Ultimately, Zionists were intending to get the movie removed entirely from Netflix. The Times of Israel reported that Israeli ministers condemn quote-unquote, terrible film about 1948 war slated to hit Netflix. And what's super wild is if you just Google, like, Israeli TV show, there is a number of things that pop up, right? Let me just read off a few. There's Tehran, which presumably is about how they have to overthrow Iran using a conspiracy of intelligence. There's Fauda, which is, again, them using their intelligence people to murder and torture Palestinians. There is Shtizl. There's False Flag, which is, again, about intelligence creating an event that presupposes an invasion of a foreign land and then an installation of a dictator or something like that. There's When Heroes Fly, which look like looks like military propaganda. There is Valley of Tears, which is literally a soldier's 
helmet with a star of David on it. You hate to see it as a Jew. And then there's losing Alice. So it's not like they're any stranger to putting out content that will influence public opinion. Avgador Lieberman said in response to the release of this film, because I think it's so telling of the reality of Zionist lies and the false reality that they have created that they live in every single day. He said, it's crazy that Netflix decided to stream a movie whose whole purpose is to create a false pretense and incite against Israeli soldiers. You know what's really upsetting the Palestinian people? It's not the checkpoints. It's not the degradation of human life. It's this movie, which is available on Netflix. Right. And then they're outgoing so-called culture minister by the name of Chili Tropper. That's his real name? I don't understand. Not a culture minister named Chili. (laughs) I don't get it. He's He's sponsored by Chili's. All right, come on. This film shows, quote, lies and libels. So here's what I don't understand. I like how lies wasn't enough for him. He was like, not only is it lies, it's also libels, which is not true because isn't libel printed? Uh, I think it's, I believe it's slander if it's verbal. Uh, you might be right about that. Yeah. Yeah, so you're did, right. You're right. Double check me, lawyer. <laughs> right. Libel yeah. is printed. So, yeah. So this so fucking idiot doesn't even understand the definition of libel. No. He's making insane claims that nobody's checking except for us here at the Palestine pod. You right now on the internet, even <laughs> though you're a lawyer. <laughs> Dude, I always get the definition of defamation and libel mixed up. Always. Yeah. Yeah, so it's defamation, it's slander. He's he, that's that's what he's alleging if he was intelligent enough to understand. But his dumbass, all right. <laughs> Problem here is they can't just say words that are not consistent with reality. Lieberman says the the movie's whole purpose is to create a false pretense. What's the false pretense? That 15,000 Palestinians were not murdered during the Nakba by Zionist gangs? I mean, this movie shows the killing of one Palestinian family. Did 15,000 more people, were they not killed at this time? Did our family members who were murdered during the Nakba, did we just imagine them? I mean, what exactly is the false pretense? Are the over 500 Palestinian cities and villages that Zionist gangs raised to the ground and completely destroyed and covered with trees... Were they a figment of our imagination? Did our houses not exist? The keys to the houses that we hold, that we wear on our necks, are those fake too? Did we imagine those? What's what's the false pretense here? Is it the Zionist narrative or is it our actual lives that were uprooted from our land, our families' houses that were totally destroyed? Our wealth, our 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 belongings, our our land. What's the false pretense? It's undisputed that before 1948, there was Palestine and there's people on Palestine and there were Palestinians in Palestine. And even their Israeli academics will speak about the horrors of the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. But some of them will say that it was justified for the purpose of creating the Jewish state in Palestine. They'll say it's fine because the Zionist project was worth it. So it doesn't matter how many people we had to kill in order to set up our state. That's okay. But to go ahead and say that you didn't kill anybody, that that you didn't destroy our cities and villages, that all of this is, is just lies, when every single day you are continuing to murder us and expel us from our lands. In the last three days, the occupation killed eight Palestinians. And guess what? It's always on film. Every day we see a new recording taken by Palestinians in occupation, showing the killing of Palestinians on this land. And we are simultaneously being told that when we're speaking about our killing by the occupation, that we're talking, we're, we're just saying lies, that it's not real. 
I don't know what more we have to do for the Zionists to abandon their narrative and realize that you can't just say words that are inconsistent with reality. You can't just say lies and at the same time act completely against what you say and expect that that's sufficient. We know we're being killed. We know we're being killed. We have it on film. We have it on film. And it's not enough to prevent Zionist leaders from making these comments. And then the media will carelessly publish it without checking it, without putting it through the the slightest level of scrutiny. They will just allow that statement to stand and garner some sort of legitimacy because now it's printed. And then as Palestinians, we have to engage every single day in this exercise of reminding people, no, the Nakba is real. No, they killed our families. No, they expelled us. No, they're still killing us. They're still expelling us. No, it's definitely real. It happened to our grandparents. That's the daily exercise that we have to engage in, in addition to going to work, dealing with our families, you know, educating our kids, getting enough sleep, taking care of our mental health. We have to do all of that, plus on a daily basis, battle this merciless propaganda campaign that we don't exist and that if we did exist they didn't kill us that we weren't there and every other lie on which the zionist project is based yeah zionists will be like never forget the holocaust also the nekba never happened also we're gonna do another nekba yeah also wait for this next one how do you how do you even exist in that type of mental space in between it never happened and we'll do it again. It's sort of like they're always doing a mental loop and they never can quite like put their finger on where they are meant to be. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's always like either we didn't do anything wrong or we're about to do something very wrong again. It's a cognitive dissonance that can only be likened to a few things in history, right? And I think we all know what I'm talking about. But it's we might like, get we might get pulled from YouTube if I say it again. <laughs> you know what? Don't. The video that was circulating of the Zionist journalist in Qatar who was trying to get footage with fans saying, "Oh, why you don't want to talk to me? I love peace. I'm here for peace." And the internet does its thing and realizes that he's a reservist from one of the most violent branches of the occupation that's responsible for the killing of so many Palestinians and that he's not just this peace-loving journalist, that he's actually an occupation soldier. And so for him to show up in Qatar and say, oh, you don't want to talk to me? Why you don't want to talk to me? And play dumb is completely calculated. It's completely completely made up. He knows exactly why people don't want to talk to him. It's this oscillating between shooting the gun and shooting with the camera, right? And then like showing yourself as being a sympathetic victim, despite the fact that you're the one doing the killing, you're the one doing the propaganda. Like, what? Yeah, because they actually, the internet also found that he had previously posted death to the Arabs and all sorts of other racist slogans. And so that guy that posted And that was that, when he was in Qatar. All right. Yeah, no, so that guy <laughs> who's posting that kind of horrific racist incitement is not this peace lover that he's painting himself out to be, but he only is doing that because it's super convenient in the moment to make it look like all of these people are just hate Israel for absolutely no reason, that they have no reason to be upset with Israel, that Israel did nothing wrong, when in reality, people's reactions are motivated by the fact that every single day, Israel kills Palestinians in cold blood. Everybody go check out Farha, watch it, watch it multiple times, put it on, even if you're not in the room, leave it on. Yeah, just stream it. Just stream it. <laughs> just like just like the podcast. You know what I mean? Put it on. Get our run our numbers up. Run our YouTube numbers up. We're doing well on Podbean, but 
Yeah, I, this is a. I think this is a good time to remind the people to share the podcast with a friend. We never do that, but we should. If you like the yeah. podcast, share it with a friend. Send it to your group chat. Send it to the WhatsApp with the aunties on it. Maybe don't I know, send it. <laughs> I know we're already in a number of WhatsApp groups. I've been told by people. I appreciate it. Right. Well, we'd like to stay out of the Zionist ones and into the you know the the ones where we, we will have more sympathetic listeners honestly anything that gets people to start leaving reviews again folks that's been another episode of the palestine pod thank you all so much for listening check us out on our website at www.palestinepod.com send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com follow us on instagram at the palestine pod and look for us on patreon www.patreon.com slash palestine pod That has been another episode of the pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day.